Welcome to Brain-Based Parenting, the Boys Ranch podcast for families. We all know how hard being a parent is, and sometimes it feels like there are no good answers to the difficult questions families have when their kids are struggling. Our goal each week will be to try and answer some of those tough questions, utilizing the knowledge, experience, and professional training Cal Farley's Boys Ranch has to offer. Now here is your host, Cal Farley Staff Development Coordinator, Joshua Sprock. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us today as we continue this journey talking about brain-based parenting. Today, we're going to start a new series on attachment. So today, I'm joined by Sam Serna, who's the Assistant Administrator of our Residential Communities here at Boys Ranch. Hello. Catherine Clay, who's our Clinical Supervisor. Hello. And Mike Wilhelm, our Senior Chaplain. Howdy, Josh. So before we get into our topic, we always start with our question of the day. Today's topic is attachment. Because we know where we come from shapes who we are, I thought it'd be interesting to ask you all about your hometown. Is there anything interesting that your hometown is known for? I'll go ahead and start. Um, I grew up in Casper, Wyoming, which is the biggest city in the state of Wyoming, which sounds impressive. But if you combine the five biggest cities in Wyoming together... Their population doesn't even equal Amarillo. That's pretty interesting. That is interesting. (laughs) I grew up in a small town, a small city called Alice, Texas, and we're known as the birthplace of Tejano music. That sounds fun. Yeah. I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is one of the bigger cities of Tennessee. And a couple of interesting things were known as a volunteer state. Our, Our city is also known as... The Marble City, due to its production of production and distribution of marble, mm. and then Knoxville is also about twenty miles from where the atomic bomb was made. Very cool. So there you go. Yeah, I'm from Shannon, Illinois. Population eight hundred. I graduated with twelve girls and eight boys, and our town is famous for nothing. <laughs> but we were out in the cornfield and it was a great place to grow up but i can't think of one darn thing we were famous for no marbles no atomic bombs no tejano music there you go just mike wilhelm it just yeah it was a charmed childhood that's wonderful very cool so oftentimes at Boys Ranch, we say that our number one intervention in working with kids is building relationships. And what we're going to be talking about here today is attachment, which is kind of the science behind why relationships are so powerful. So what is attachment and why is it important to understand how we parent our kids? Attachment is the primary relationship we have with our caregiver, and that relationship shapes relationships we have in the future. And so if that's a good experience and it's a healthy experience and a stable experience, the idea is that we will then take those skills into relationships with other people in the future. So how and when is attachment formed then? From very early on, from your very first primary caregiving experience and even intrauterine experience can impact that. So I think you can think of most of us, we were all babies at one point. Mm. And so um, that very first experience where your caregiver responded to you, whether it was a cry or a dirty diaper or your room was cold or whatever that may be, whatever that external stressor was, and your caregiver responded to you in a consistent way, then what you learned from that caregiver is that adults are trustworthy and that adults will show up for you and that adults will meet your needs. And that would form a healthy attachment. And then if it was opposite, your experience is opposite where you weren't attuned to or attended to in a 
in a quick amount of time, then you might learn that caregivers caregivers are inconsistent or caregivers are unhelpful or harmful. And then that would set a template for what relationships in the future would be like. It's super interesting how impactful that is and how much weight that mm-hmm. actually carries just knowing that. And it, it's always uh, when I was starting to learn these things, sometimes you feel like, dang, I, I didn't even know. And how many parents feel that way, that they were so ill-equipped mm-hmm. to to uh, raise a kid or, or like just being raising a child in the way that we we learned mm-hmm. by our parents. Yes. Um, and so we, in a way, think we're doing the right thing, which I'm not saying it impacts anybody completely negative. Like it's all bad. Right. Because we do what we know to do. But uh, it's very interesting to know that mm-hmm. being there, being available and attuned. Josh, I'm the, I'm not the expert here. But so I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'm curious to ask Sam and Catherine this is with attachment, is it only learned, experienced, or is, is there a component to it that would be? Uh, inherited? You know, I think kind of as both of you are talking and with your question, I'm thinking about a couple of things. I think if if the caregiver has come to this journey of parenting with their own stuff or their own struggles or their own barriers, whatever word you want to use, I can imagine that that would impact their ability to bond with a newborn. So it's not just that the child is being responded to. It is that, but it's more than that. It's about the child is being responded to with a soft tone and with loving eyes and with a rocking back and forth. And it's the somatosensory bath piece that I think is really important and adds to just the, the, the showing up for the child. But I know that there are a lot of caregivers that, like like Sam said, might be overwhelmed or might have two or three kids and a newborn or might be in a pandemic like COVID. And that impacts the ability to provide super attuned caregiving or that somatosensory bath that it is a loving experience. It's more than just handing a bottle over or changing a diaper. It's the way that in the way in which that's done, I think that has an impact. And so I just know not every caregiver has that ability. So you're saying that as far as nature and nurture, that this is primarily a, a attachment rests primarily on nurture. Is that right? I think that's right. Yeah, from everything I've heard and read. Because, I mean, really, if you think about it, what can a baby do to take care of itself? Right. right? Mm-hmm. Nothing. So the only way that they get their needs met is through crying. They don't even know that they have needs a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Babies don't. They just know something weird is going Discom- on. Yeah, yeah discomfort. discomfort. Which yeah. sets off alarm bells in their brains. And the only thing they know to do is to cry, right? So when they cry, that's signals that caregiver to come and meet that need. And I think that kind of leads into my next question is, how does that connect to the template of trust for kids. What do you guys think about that? The answer kind of makes sense. I mean, in that if I'm not, if I don't believe a person's going to come help me when I'm asking whether I can understand that at the time or not, mm-hmm. it would probably be that I wouldn't trust people to come help mm-hmm. me. So I try to figure out how to do things myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think each cry is an opportunity to build trust or each whine or whatever yeah. noise that the baby's making is an opportunity to build trust and time after time after time of Responding to that child is building a very strong pathway to I can trust you. The world is safe. The world will help me or my caregiver will help me. And that becomes just 
kind of ingrained or, you know. And I'm asking questions again as probably the, the, the not the expert at the table, but it would sound to me like that. So you're saying the parent being attuned, being present is going to be critical for that child to develop healthy um, attachment style. Absolutely. So what I'm thinking about is sitting in a, a waiting room at the doctor's office and seeing um, parents with children and the parents are dialed into electronics sure. and eye contact is not what it was mm. 30 years ago, right. uh, physical touch, verbal engagement. D- do you see that as detrimental, something that's compromised now and that maybe attachment style is, is suffering because right. of that? Well, and I think it goes back to whether, for me, whether Whatever the distraction is, if it's mental health, if it's substance abuse, if it's an electronic, if it's an overwhelmed Mm -hmm. caregiver or a a stay-at-home mom who also has kids at home or whatever it may be, any distraction in the caregiving that makes it a a disruptive experience uh, will impact attachment, you know, because it's, it's that attention, that attunement that I see you, you're important. I mean, it even goes back to you were talking about like that early experience, like the caregiver's all these, all these things will bond a child. The caregiver's scent, the caregiver's tone, the caregiver's rhythm, the caregiver's own stress response stuff. All that stuff is going to be formed very soon, at the very beginning of their that bond, that mother and child bond. And so, yes, kind of what you're saying, if there's a distraction there, then I would imagine, yes. So it's it's easy to go negative on on. Uh, parents that sure. are too caught up into electronics. But in all fairness, any parent that's under-resourced and sure. stressed, yeah. right. this is going to be impact. Yes. It's going to be compromising mm-hmm. attachment with the with the child. Yeah. And I think I keep thinking back to just COVID. I know I've mentioned it a couple of times, but I had, how old was my daughter? Two-ish, maybe during COVID and my sister had some, her older kids. And I just know a lot of people were trying to care, give, work from home and educate all at the same time. And I'm sure most of us here can kind of relate to that. And then I think that gave me the opportunity to do not a great job at work, not a great job caregiving and not a great job taking care of myself in my home. And that in itself had nothing to do with anything except for COVID and how strapped everybody was. And so I think about that with moms and babies during that time, there's plenty of people that had, you know, COVID babies, quote unquote, (laughs) and how different that was, what kind of experience that was when they were trying to manage all that stuff, you know, like the rest of us, but with an infant. I think one of the things we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks is the different styles of attachment, secure attachment, avoidant attachment, ambivalent and disorganized. And I think your your question, Mike, on that is going to really come full circle when we start talking about that. So I'm glad you brought that up um, because things like technology will have a huge impact on, yeah. on attachment. I'd like to mention something else I think may be impactful, and I'm not sure if it's for this um, particular podcast, but as we're talking about early caregiving, you know, society is so busy and, mm. you know, families got to go to work and mm-hmm. both, both parents work. And, you know, so some of the time Right after um, moms have babies, um, they have to go to daycare. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're also counting on those caregivers to do these things. Mm-hmm. And I um, mean, I don't know. I, I didn't actually experience that myself, but I wonder how that also influences some. So it's not all on the parents, mm-hmm. you know, because, uh, you know, we have multiple caregivers. Right helping very young children and also helping to create some kind of attachment style. Mm -hmm. Again, I I might be out of bounds of the talk. I just thought that's important to talk about. Mm -hmm. I think traditionally families and family groups have all lived very, very Mm -hmm. close together and uh, family units kind of supported one another in those areas. 
where they didn't have to subcontract that out. Yes. Um, but in our more modern society, I think that's kind of changed. And yes. you don't have your cousins, your aunts, uncles, mm-hmm. grandma, grandpa as close as a lot of times maybe you used to be able to. So I think that is going to impact our societal attachment. Well, and even thinking about like caregiver ratio related to what you're talking about, Josh, would be like, I don't know, five adults Mm -hmm. to one child because you're talking about a mother, a father, an aunt, an uncle, a grandmother or whoever. And now it is, yes, one caregiver, multiple kids, Mm -hmm. you know, whether that's in a daycare setting or a school setting or, you know, in your own home, it's just we're just not living in the same way that we used to. That might be more helpful for attachment and early caregiving. Mm -hmm. Can I follow up and ask Catherine another question, Josh? Oh, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> so um, attachment formation, it, primary caregiver is going to be the m- major player in this. Is that right? Yes. Mother would be where things would start. Father is going to be close second in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also extended family, community is also those those positive relationships and that feedback that child's getting. Yes. That's also helping develop attachment. Yes. So it's not just all pinned on primary caregiver. So wherever that primary caregiver might be stressed, under-resourced, right. people stepping in, right. you know, might be jumping ahead, Josh. No, but, right. but this is going to be yep. really important. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because like, think about now, like if, if I'm struggling or I've got something to do or I'm trying to work or if, and I'm living in a community and let's say Sam says, hey, let me help you out there and helps me in a caregiving capacity with my own kids and that relieves my own stress, my own, you know, distraction or whatever it may be. And that's the community sense of the, kind of like what you're referencing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, re, it's a relief for me as a caregiver to yeah. live in a community or an aid to me, I guess. So one of the things I've also heard people talk about, and this will play into some of the future recordings we'll do, is that kids who have good, healthy attachment typically have, they say, 30 plus positive adult mm-hmm. interactions a day. And a positive adult interaction can be anything from like a stranger smiling at them to, you know, a caregiver giving them um, soothing attention. Uh, But a kid who has unhealthy attachment, they typically only have maybe like six positive Mm -hmm. adult interactions a day. So that kind of speaks to your question, Mike, that, you know, it does take the community, everyone pitching in and pouring into that kid to help them with their attachment. Can I share something that I just uh, thought of as you were saying that? Um, Yes, I agree. And there's also another piece to this that is interesting to me because when you grow up, let's just take the example of the um, attached, securely attached child who has 30 plus positive interactions a day. They're also walking through this world differently. Mm -hmm. They're walking through this world thinking and knowing and, and having a sense of truth in them that the world's safe and loving and wonderful. And Mike is going to smile at me. Sam's a nice guy and Josh is friendly Hmm. versus the kid who's had adverse experiences, who has potentially like more disorganized attachment, is going to walk through the world skeptical of you, afraid of Sam and thinking you're up to something (laughs) or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. they will elicit into the environment cues that might actually recreate what that belief, right? So if I look at you, Mike, and I know you're, and I think, or I sense that you are not safe, I'm going to put my head down and walk away from you. Mm -hmm. That's not going to invite you to say hi to me, mm-hmm. right? Same with you, Sam. Same with you, Josh. And so that in itself goes all the way back to mm-hmm. secure attachment or insecure attachment or whatever it may be that we're going to elicit from the world what we believe of it. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point that mm-hmm. zero to three, when our attachment is being formed, really does shape the lens mm-hmm. on how we see the world in a disproportionate way. Mm-hmm. I mean, your attachment style can change all throughout your life, but it really is set more in that time period, mm-hmm. zero to three, than any other time in your life. So, so that yeah. kind of transitions maybe to the last question. How can we promote healthy relationships in children who have experienced trauma? And why is this so important in their recovery and well-being? So to answer the question about how we can promote healthy relationships in children who have experienced trauma, and then why is this so important to, for their recovery and well-being? I, As you were saying that, I was thinking about um, Dr. Bruce Perry speaking about how to interact with kids who might have a sensitized system or a system that's a little bit weary of intimacy or closeness or relationship. And there's a couple of things that I always try to do with those types of kids is is to be respectful and give space to those mm-hmm. kids and use proximity as a tool. So even if that proximity is not close to them or if it is close to them, I think you just have to know the child and then also giving choices and power when power can be given. And I think also you have to to just kind of be understanding that they come from a hard space or they have some struggle with relationship and be really curious about that. And I think as we do these small, what seem like small things over time, and what we would hope hopefully see or likely see is just little shifts in their ability to tolerate intimacy or connection or relationships or their interest in getting close to someone. Um, I think we can't expect that to happen overnight because their adversities or their struggles in their relationships or whatever got us here didn't happen overnight. It's a long journey, but slowly but surely, I think with, with those types of tips, I think that it can be done. Now, I, I appreciate this whole subject because one thing, I, I'm not the expert, but one thing I do notice from uh, the work that I do as a chaplain, and it's well documented through research, is that as attachments go, so a faith formation goes, an attachment with God. Mm. Wow. And it's probably something that all of us would say, well, yeah, of course, we've noticed that, but the, the research actually substantiates that. Believers are commonly securely attached children of believers. So for listeners that may be taking care of a child, especially children that come from hard places, as as, um, I think Dr. Purvis maybe Mm -hmm. would say, those children will tend to have probably some uh, challenges with attachment. And someone who's trying to raise a child from a hard place that has a, um, and if you have a strong investment in your religious tradition, you might notice that things don't go so well with that child's um, faith formation. And that stands to reason. So the the good news is there are uh, things to do to help. So uh, whatever we can do and what Sam and Catherine are suggesting to help with healthy, secure attachment, that will help with this whole healthy faith formation mm-hmm. with children. And on the other hand, if we hit the panic button and push hard into mm-hmm. that child, rather than think about attachment, when we push hard with religion on that child, we're actually going to, uh, that will actually be a setback. And we'll probably be talking about that more on the next podcast. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you, you both said some some really good positive things, and I think those things interlink, right? But in that, in that um, one thing Catherine said is that you meet them where they're at, yes. right? And sometimes it's hard for us to know. We want people to like us instinctively. We want, you know, and a kid, I remember what Catherine just saying, like sometimes a, a young person will 
ignore you yeah, and, exactly. and it looks so intentional and it makes you feel bad yes. and you know the and it's kind of you have to do the counter of what you're feeling you know sometimes <laughs> i'm feeling hey uh well that kid obviously doesn't want to talk to me i'll avoid them but all we're doing is just feeding that insecurity mm-hmm. that they have and, or that negative attachment but also i got to be respectful mm-hmm. you know um, oftentimes i i used to deal with kids in crisis and i go in, in the hottest situations and they're upset and i'm trying to connect with them in some way and sometimes it was simply that i had to just respect their space tell mm-hmm. them i'm here Mm-hmm. Um, I'm available if you need to speak to me. I'm just trying to help calm this situation right. down and make sure you're safe. And, and you know, and they have no clue who I am. And so I think like all that is trying to, uh, if you push too hard, you might just push them away. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so, um, the, I guess the more we study these things and the more we understand those things, we learn not to take those things personal. Right. And that's the hardest thing for a caregiver, especially in these group settings that we all work in. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a caregiver it can be um, hard in that sense and that they sometimes trigger our our stuff and our trauma as well yes it's It's true sam seems like brief encounter intentional encounters Mm -hmm. with warmth eye contact and calling the child by name for those of us who aren't the immediate caregivers but it seems like those over time those investments rather than trying to uh, do it all at once uh, but it seems like that's where things yeah and it goes back i mean to come full circle it goes back to what josh was asking at the beginning about building trust and how does the uh, primary caregiver do that with a with a baby and then speaking or referencing what you're saying these doses of um, trust these doses of opportunity for you to know I'm going to show up or that I'm I'm trustworthy or I'm safe or whatever it may be it's these doses or these I guess doses is the right word and then eventually you know I've worked with kids that I don't get there until three four five years later but you get there you know, and you do shift and change their trajectory with relationships for sure, slow and steady. It seems like it has to move from being unknown, being a stranger, to being familiar. Yes, it's and, respectful. And, and, and to finally perhaps right. being a, a safe person right. or some trust start to right. emerge. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys for all your insight today. And thank you all out there for joining us on this journey. I hope you'll come back next week when we really dive into the core of this and we talk about secure attachment. So until then, remember, you might have to loan out your frontal lobes today. Just make sure you get them back. Thank you for listening to Brain-Based Parenting. We hope you enjoyed this show. If you would like more information about Cal Farley's Boys Ranch, are interested in employment, would like information about placing your child, or would like to help us help children by donating to our mission, please visit calfarley.org. You can find us on all social media platforms by searching for Cal Farley's. Thank you for spending your time with us, and have a blessed day.